the um, I said last week the Rosh Hashanah service, I mean, the day of Rosh Hashanah, at least that's reflected in the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, are interesting for what they do say and also for what they don't say. They don't, for example, say anything, basically nothing about repentance. One might have expected the Rosh Hashanah service to say something about repentance, but it's but it's not there. And uh, it means that the fundamental theme of Rosh Hashanah is not repentance, although repentance does sort of creep into the service indirectly. And that is because since what it is fundamentally is the day of, day of judgment, God is king, is judge, and when you stand being judged by an all-knowing judge, the natural instinct is to begin to be concerned about how the judgment might end up and to make all kinds of commitments about the future. And that's how the Rosh Hashanah, day of Rosh Hashanah is also the beginning of these ten days of repentance and leads up to Yom Kippur. In the words of the Torah, when the Torah describes this process of repentance in chapter 30 of Devarim, it begins with the words, you sort of take to heart. And that is, you take to heart, I was going to say, what it means is that we haven't yet figured out what's wrong, but we know something's wrong. Sometimes you feel unease or anxiety about something, something's bothering you. Someone says, what's bothering you? Someone says, to me, I said, I'm not sure, but something is bothering me. And later on you figure out, hopefully, what it is that's bothering you. Anyway, that's Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is indirectly maybe about repentance, forgiveness, and all that, but it's not directly about that at all, because word about that would be manifest in the service, which it's not. Yom Kippur, on the other hand, is a much simpler day. Yom Kippur is easy, actually. Yom Kippur is clearly about repentance. It's about us and our ability to change. Um, I'm not saying that's easy, but the idea is easy. Rosh Hashanah is a day very foreign to us. It's a day about God, God's kingship. So we have to struggle with that. I discussed that last week. What is, what is the service of Yom Kippur about? So essentially there are two main components to the, to the Yom Kippur service, and then there are additional things as well. I mean, if, if pressed to say what are the core prayers of, of Yom Kippur, because it's important to know what the core prayers are if we want to understand the day as reflected in our, in our service. There's also the day as reflected in the, uh, in the Torah, as reflected in the Bible. But in terms of our experience of Yom Kippur, as reflected in the Basar, I would say there are three key pieces to the service. The first two are obvious, obviously correct. The third one I'm not sure you put it as a key piece. One of them is, are these confessions that we are saying. On, uh, on, on Yom Kippur. Uh, they are, there's the long confession, the Alchait, I'm talking about the Ashkenazic rite, I'm not sure the Sephardi probably have a similar or different rite. Um, these confessions, which are long and short, uh, typically they consist of the, the long one, which goes on and on, Alchait Shechatanu Lefanecha, the sins we have committed concerning, and listed typically in alphabetical order. And then there's the short confession of Shamnu, Bogadnu, Bazalnu, etc. Those are confessions. And interestingly enough, these confessions, what's called Vidui, are recited actually not only on Yom Kippur itself. There are five services on Yom Kippur. There's the night service, then there's the morning service, Shacharit, then there's Musaf, 
That's three. Minchus four. And there is the Ne'ila service, the last service of the Ne'ila. And the uh, Vidu is recited during all of those services, twice, privately and publicly. And in, on top of that, there's another curious custom, which is to recite the confession, Mincha before Yom Kippur. Very strange. Mincha before, be, actually before the meal. That's why we actually pray Mincha early on Erev Yom Kippur. Because we want to say vidu before before we eat. That's a whole discussion as to why that should be, but that, that is the practice. There is actually another interesting practice, very interesting practice, which many Jews observe, and that is to say vidu just as you begin Yom Kippur. Anybody familiar with that practice? Okay. There, there are many viduim, actually. Tzvilah Zaka is one of them. And who, is, who, who here is familiar with, with uh, Tzvilah Zaka? You say Tzvilah Zaka? Sorry? I read it, but I think a long time. It's very male. It's not for women. Tzvilah Zaka is not for women. But the point is, Tzvilah Zaka is actually a very interesting prayer. But there are others. Forget that Tzvilah Zaka is what we there. But there are other viduyim written by the... Oh, there's one that I've been saying the last few years, which is written by the... Uh, by the uh, Ibn Ezra, L'cha Hashem. There's a very good tune for it, by the way. Not the whole thing, by uh, Eud Banai. You should get it, it's very good, excellent. L'cha Hashem Teshukati, Eud Banai. It's very, very good. Very beautiful uh, music, I assume he wrote it himself. It was written by the Ibn Ezra, and that is recited as, as Yom Kippur begins. The truth is, that particular uh, uh, poem, confessional, is also found in one of Sabato's books. It's very interesting. He talks about the, it's very good, I forget which one it is. I think to you, Kavanaugh, I remember, but Sabato, in one of his novels, Sabato's with Rosh Hashivit, but he also writes novels, he writes stories. So he, he, in one of his books, he actually describes this particular piece, it's very beautiful, by the Ibn Ezra. And the practice is to recite it as Yom, just before Kol Nidre, as Yom Kippur is beginning. I want to get back to this interesting practice of saying Vidui as Yom Kippur starts. The, pra- the one who actually alludes to this practice, which is a common practice, I'm not sure it's common on the west side of Manhattan, but it's, it's a very common practice. Um, the west side of Manhattan before Kol Nidre, everybody's schmoozing, that's another story, but, but the point is that if you go to a place which takes the prayer service very seriously, so the very common practice to say vidui as Yom Kippur is beginning. I want to get back to this. What, what is that about, actually? The one who talks about this, actually, is the Ramban. In his commentary on the Talmud, the Ramban discusses this practice, which is very... And many, many people wrote vidui. The point I'm making is that, so apart from the vidui that we are saying ten times on Yom Kippur, twice, two times five, there's another practice to say vidui in Mincha, and there's an additional practice to enter into Yom Kippur with, these, with, this, with some kind of a confessional. Very curious practice. So vidui certainly is one of the core ingredients of Yom Kippur, and that's surprising, because when the Rambam wrote his very beautiful and well-known laws of, laws of repentance, Hilchot Shuvah, ten chapters of which, uh, he, he said there's one mitzvah, and the mitzvah is to to do tshuva and to confess your sins. So the confession, actually, the idea of actually verbal confession, 
for the Rambam is, is what Shuv is about. He based it on the statement in the Talmud that the, that the thing is close to your heart. To do it with your mouth and your heart. Your mouth, says the Talmud, means refers to confession. Vidui. And the idea of Vidui, actually, we find in several places in the, uh, in the Torah. Not related to Yom Kippur, but what is related to Yom Kippur? The Torah says that when the, the sacrificial rite of Yom Kippur is performed and the sins of Israel are uh, confessed upon a goat, the Soyer Mishtaleach, the goat that sent off into the desert, according to the Talmud, throw down a cliff. The Torah doesn't say that, but that's the Talmudic understanding. And the priest says the Torah shall place his two hands upon the head of the goat. He shall confess upon the goat all the sins of Israel. And this sacrifice, the peculiar sacrifice, is the one that bears all of Israel's sins. It's so strange. The sacrifice that bears our sins is not a sacrifice that's brought in the, in the temple. It's one that's sent out to the wilderness. So, anyway, confession is very central to Yom Kippur because it's about repentance. You expect, if it's about repentance, it's, con- it's the confessional. And the confessional, among other aspects uh, that it has, apart from actually articulating something, which is very important, the articulation itself is important. Apart from that, it's also the details. I remember when, uh, when Rowley was here, Rowley Madelon was here, I had invited him in June to speak, speak about prayer. So, he asked, he basically, the whole time he was answering questions, so I, uh, I asked a question, because I wanted to talk about this. I said, what is the, what is the music, I said, what is uh, the role of music, singing, when it comes to prayer? Because so, I know that in BJ they do a lot of singing, he's very centered on the singing. But I also know he has many thoughts about it. So he gave an answer that not too many people would give, the way he formulated it, I very much. He said, music is very important, and it can take you to a different place, etc. But at the end of the day, it's about the words. And then he added, that, that, that many people might say. The next thing almost nobody would say. Because after all, he said, what is prayer about? He said, it's, it's about making commitments, and that we do through speech. Now, it's, it's not a matter of fact. How many people, including rabbis, would ever make such a statement? Because prayer is about making commitments. How can you do it without words? Of course, I stood up and I reported that it's correct. And that's, that's the point of Vidui. It's about the details. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but the details are very important. And the Talmud says, when it comes to Vidui, you have to say what it is. It's not enough to say it wrong. You have to be explicit. You have to be as, as, as concrete as possible. Because it's all about commitments, and what are we committing to? And therefore, so that, 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 that's what we do. That, that's one piece of the service on, 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 on Yom Kippur that's clear. Point yes? Why is Zakhar male oriented? I will. I will. I will. Is the woman not available? No, 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 no. I will, I will explain about I will explain about Zakhar later. I will explain. I actually happen to like Tzvi Zakhar for a different reason. But I will, I, will, I will get to that. In any event, that's about the confessions. That's one piece of the service that's queer. Then the second piece of the service, which is central to, to, to Yom Kippur, is what we call Slichot, the penitential service. Slichot is, at its core, 
the repetition of the attributes of God's mercy. That's the core of Svichot, Hashem, Hashem, Kerachum, B'chanun, etc. And it's, we don't simply want to say those, that, those couple of verses, so we intersperse them with other kinds of statements, with poems, etc., and the different kinds of poems. And these uh, poems, typically one of them is called the Pismon, it's the main poem, recited responsively, and there are other types, many types of, of, of Svichot. Um, but at its core, this repetition of the attributes of God's mercy is a central prayer of Yom Kippur. Now, let me just digress for two minutes and tell you something about the Slichot service that's actually very interesting. If you open up any ancient master, if you go to any place or you go to a uh, service where they actually retain all of, the, all, of the, uh, all of the traditions. I'll give you two examples of services that retain all of the traditions. If you go to a, to a, to a true Sephardic service, I don't mean Hasidim, I mean we'll Sephardim. Go to a Yemenite synagogue, go to any, any place that actually retains traditions. They will say Slichot in all of the five Yom Kippur services. All of them. If you go to a place where they use the Birnbaum Master or whatever they're using, the point is they will typically say Slichot only the night of Yom Kippur, called Nidre night, after Mariv, and also Ne'iwa. But in Shacharit, in Mincha, and Musaf, they will not say Slichot. They'll say a truncated piece of it, which is was cut by some editor in, in the wrong place. But they won't say Slichot. But if you go, to, for example, to a, if you pray in a true Sephardic service, or if you go, for example, to the, uh, to the, to the German tradition, to the Yekis, you go to them, they maintain the traditions. If you go to Breuer's, they don't change anything. They will say all the Slichot in all the services. It is obvious that that is, you can see in the, the, the Gaonim, more than a thousand years, they'll talk about the recitation of Slichot in all of the Yom Kippur services. Yes, now there were those. Yes, Rabbi Soloveitchik was, who believed very much in maintaining all the traditions, especially when it came to prayer, and it also bothered him that the way the master chops up the Slichot is makes no sense. So he and others. Uh, others as well, have maintained the recitation of Slichot in all the services. What is actually very interesting is two questions. First of all, why did it stop? From, because clearly they were saying for hundreds of years, why did it stop? And secondly, interestingly also to me is, why, when it obviously makes no sense, was it, was it, was it, was it not restored? It says a lot about, about public prayer. What it says is that even something makes no sense, when a community does it, well, it makes no obvious sense. Maybe it makes some, some sense in some other way, but communities, when they get into a pattern of doing something, find great difficulty in actually changing, even where clearly this is something which doesn't seem to fit with our, with our tradition. But if you go to any synagogue that has retained the old traditions, you'll see they say Slichot in, in all of the services. I wanted to begin by saying something about Slichot, then I'll get back to the Vidui, and then maybe we'll get to the third core piece of the, of the Yom Kippur service. As far as the Slichot is concerned, the first interesting question is, where do you say Slichot? Where do you actually say Slichot? Where in the service, are, 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 I'm talking about the classical service. Classical service. Where in the classical service are the Slichot recited? So let me, let me point this out to you. First of all, Slichot, if you go to a service, most of us don't, I'm sure, but if you go to a service where they say Slichot in all of the service, in, in, in all five prayers, First point to make is that Slichot are only recited in the repetition, in the 
in the in the public service. Slichotah never recited privately. That's number one. It's only a public prayer. Okay. Now, let's say where in the in, 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 as, as a public prayer, it is always recited, but when possible, in the middle of the repetition of the Shmona Hesrei, in the Amida, in the repetition of the Amida. Now, let's say. Let's take the let's, let's let's talk about the one place where everybody says slichot. I think without exception. Any, I mean, anybody who has any kind of a traditional service at all says slichot, and that is in the last of the Yom Kippur services, Neiwa. In Neiwa, everybody says slichot. There's virtually nothing else to say except slichot in in Neiwa. When do we say slichot in Neiwa? At what point in the service do, do we introduce Neiwa? Do we introduce slichot? And the answer is, do you know? Yes. The answer is, it is introduced after the Chazan says, Yahweh V'yavon. It's after Yahweh V'yavon. Yahweh V'yavon is the classical statement or prayer that we say on every festival. Yahweh V'yavon, etc. It says, B'yom, so on Yom Kippur, B'yom HaKippurim HaZeh, we said on Pesach, we say on, on all the holidays, Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. On all these days, Shemini Yatzer, we say on these days, Biyom X, Sochmenu Hashem, Olokeinu Bo Vitalva, Fakdenu Olo Vracha, Hoshinu V'chayim, Dvayishu V'rachamim, Chus V'chanenu, V'rachem Ovenu V'hoshiyenu, K'elecho Einenu, K'emel Chanim V'rachum Ata. At that point in the Iwa, if you have your master, in the Ashkenazic rites, the Chazim begins with Petachal Anushar open up the gates, and then we are saying slichot, and the common practice is, and the traditional practice, is to say 13 of them. 13, the attributes 13 times. That's the heart and soul of Ne'ilah, actually. Now, what's interesting is that not only, that, that's Ne'ilah, but for those rare people that say slichot also in Shacharit and also Mincha of Yom Kippur, it's the same thing. In each of the other two services, after Yahweh V'yavo, we begin with Slichot. Slach Lanu Avinu Kichatanu, that usually typically begins. In some Sidurim, I don't know about the art school, I haven't seen, but some of the Sidurim you'll see, it's interesting, the study of the Siddur is very interesting from a historical standpoint. In some of the, the in the old Adam, it's a German master, that actually have Slichot printed. But in some other Sidurim, in Machzorim, you'll see three words. There's no Slichot. Kan Omrim Slichot. At this point, you say Slichot, but it's not printed. And one of the theories about why Slichot disappeared, Goldschmidt goes crazy about this, where are they, you know? But the argument, there were two main arguments as to why they disappeared. Interesting argument. One is that in Europe, they would not say the same Slichot every single year. They would vary. There were loads of, people wrote a lot of Slichot. So they had their more popular ones, but every year, they would, they would say different ones. But the printer could not keep up with this. The printer couldn't print that so many slichot. So they would come out with, they didn't have photostats in those days, they must have had some kind of a text. But at this point, since, since it's varied from one community to the next, the, the, the printer didn't want to print a particular set of, 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 of slichot, so simply said, kan omrim slichot. But the moment you don't actually print it, forget about it. The moment it's not printed, no one's going to say it. So it disappeared. That's one theory. The other theory is that it disappeared because over the last couple of hundred years, we have a new institution called the Chazan. The Chazan, as a paid performer, or whatever, uh, that's fairly recent. 
The Chazanim didn't care for Srichot too much because he can't do that much with it. They're like Nisana Tokif better or whatever. So hidden the, I don't know. But the point is, so with the advent of the Chazan as, as a paid, paying the guy money, you want him to do something. Srichot, you can't get too much mileage out of Srichot. So that's another theory as to why the Srichot did. In any event, the Srichot disappeared in most congregations, but where they exist, they're introduced by Yahweh Viyavu. Now, let me say something about the introduction of Yahweh Viyavu. Yeah, what do you want to say, sir? It is connected linguistically to the last five words, but it's more than that. What Suri says is, if you look at the last few words of Yahweh Viyavu, it says, <laughs> and then it says, Chanun <laughs> Varachum are two of the 13 attributes of God's mercy. In fact, not only are they, are they two of the 13 attributes of God's mercy, they're the main two. If I have a chance, I'll explain why they're the main two. I'll get to that. That's very important for Yom Kippur, actually. So Suri says, if you look at the end of Yahweh Viyavu, Ki Melech Chanun Varachum Ata, to perfectly lead into the Slicha, because Chanun and Rachum, gracious and merciful, are the Hashem, Hashem, Kerachum, Vachanum. Those are the first, basically the first two attributes of God's mercy. Yes, yes. Kelmelech is an introduction. Right. Kelmelech is, is another introduction to Slichot, which perhaps picks up from Yahweh Yavu as well. That's also a good point. Now, this is another point, though. But before you comment, we make a different point about Yahweh Yavu, which is this. There's something curious about Yahweh Yavu. The truth is, it's an old fight. Old, I mean, about eight, about eight, about uh, 800 years old. Rabbeinu Tam. There's something very curious. I'll, I'll tell you something right now, which you probably never noticed. I mean, you did notice it. But you never thought about it for two seconds. Please, please correct me if I'm wrong. So he says, I did think about it. Okay, maybe you thought about it. But I'll tell you what it is. Let's say this year. This year, Yom Kippur is when? It's on Shabbos, right? Yom Kippur is on Shabbos. Whenever the holiday, say, whenever the holiday falls on Shabbos, you start, let's say, in the davening, Atobah Chaton, blah, blah, blah. Right? You also mentioned Shabbos. We have to mention Shabbos. It's the holiest day, of course. In all of the services, we're always mentioning Shabbos and the, and, and, and the other day. Except for one prayer. Yahweh Yavo. In Yahweh Yavo, you never mention Shabbos. Even though it's Shabbos, Right? We see the Ashkenazim don't. I'm not sure about the Svardim. But the Ashkenazic rite, based on Rabbeinu Tam, is you never mention Shabbos in Yahweh Viyavu. Why not? Why not? It is Shabbos. This is Yom Kippur, falls on Shabbos. You don't say Zochreinu Hashem, right? But you don't sleep on Shabbos. You don't? Well. You don't have it full. Okay, so in other words, the point is the following. The, the, theme, of, the theme of atonement is not a Shabbos thing. It's actually, Shabbos is the one holy day we have, the only one, where there's no atonement theme. Every other holiday we have, without exception, talks about sin, talks about forgiveness, talks about God's mercies. God's rachamim. In fact, that's how all the Musaf, the classical Musaf begins on Yantiv. It talks about sin. Melech rachman rachem oleinu. And the sacrifice, the sacrifice, the Muslim sacrifice of every single holiday, without exception, contains Sirizim and Chalil It's a sin offering. 
There's a sin offering on every festival. Every single festival, Pesach, Shavuot, has one of the themes, forgiveness for sin. The only exception to the rule of Shabbos. On Shabbat, there is no sin offering. There's only a burnt offering. Right? There's, there's, there is no there is no sin. So on Shabbos, the Yahweh Yavel theme, not just the last five words of Yahweh Yavel, but the whole theme of Yahweh, the key word of Yahweh Yavel was the word Zikaron. Zikaron, Zikronenu, Fikdonenu, Zikaron in the liturgy refers always to, to God's forgiveness, to sin and forgiveness. As evidence, for example, by Rosh Chodesh, right? Rosh Chodesh and Biyamcha Natata, Zaman Kapara Lechot Hodotam, Yotam Rakhiyu Venecha, blah, blah, blah. Zikaron Lechulam Yiyu, or Zikaron, means forgiveness. So Zikronenu, as Rabbi Tam said, and the Ashkenazim have followed his direction, that on Shabbos it's inappropriate to mention Shabbos in Yavu Yavu, because the theme of Yavu Yavu and the theme of Shabbat are not, don't, don't work well together. And before you comment, I had another thought about Yavu Yavu as well, which is I wonder about Yavu Yavu, why we don't say Shabbos in Yavu Yavu. Yavu Yavu, Zichroneinu Ufiktoneinu, Zichron Avoteinu, Zichron Moshiach Ben David Avdecha, Zichron Yerushalayim Yerkochecha, I think there's another theme about Jerusalem and about David. The term that's found in the, in, the, in, the, in the Tanakh when it comes to David and Jerusalem is the city that I have chosen and the king that I have chosen. Bechirat David, Bechirat Hamikdash. And on, in, on Shabbos, even though Shabbos is observed by Jews and not by Gentiles, that's true, but the idea of chosenness is not basically a Shabbos theme. It's a holiday theme. Amin is the basic prayer of, 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 the, of the festivals. It's about history, it's about chosenness within, within, within history, as opposed to accepting the Shabbat, accepting God as creator, which is the Shabbos theme. So for all the above reasons, the kapara element, the chosenness element, and the rachum v'chanum, as it ends, we don't say on Shabbat, we never mention Shabbat in Yavah v'yavo, so it's a perfect uh, jumping off point to say the Srichot. That takes care of Ni'ila, that everybody says, every, I mean all traditional services. I know what everybody does, frankly, but uh, just try to understand what I'm doing. Then there's Shachavit and there's Mincha. That takes care of three of the five. So we're left with two. Musaf and Marif. You wanted to say yeah. something? No, I just wanted to ask you, what defines the prayer and the slichot? The, the key ingredient of the slichot is the repetition of those two or three verses in the book of Exodus. Hashem, Hashem, kerachum v'chanun, erech I'll talk more about it. That is the main point of slichot. That is the main element of the slichot, but we also say certain liturgical poems, but we don't want to just say one or two lines and that's the end of it. So there's a, whole, there's a whole world of these poems which surround these, the, I mean, some people have devoted their lives to studying these things. They're different kinds. I'll give you an example. Something that's very interesting. Actually, I was thinking tonight of doing this and I decided not to do it. There are certain genres when it comes to Srikot. I'll tell you one of them. One is called, if you open up a Srikot book, take, take for example Goldschmidt's work, the critical edition. There's a lot, since the, since the Geniza fragments have been found, there's tons of, tons of stuff on Srikot. The fact is that there's one of the genres for the Srichot is called Akedah. 
There are many, many, many slichot which talk about the binding of Isaac, Akedat Yitzchak, as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a genre. And what is very interesting, if you open up, whether you say it or not, if you open up a, a, a master and you look at the various Akedot that are written for the night of Yom Kippur, the morning of Yom Kippur, the Musaf, the Mincha, I don't think either we have an Akedah. But for those four, you see something interesting. And that is the difference. And if you ask me, what is the value of saying Slichot? In, in the service that I've run for many years, we do say Slichot. And many people object to it for a whole variety of reasons. Um, but I'll tell you what the positive side of saying Slichot is. Assuming we can understand what we're actually saying, which requires study. The positive side is that it picks up something else which is very important about, about Yom Kippur. Because we think of Yom Kippur as one big blur, you know what I mean? You have all these services, it all comes together. The fact of the matter is that the tone of, of the night, each service has its own mood and its own themes. The night of Yom Kippur of Kol Nidri is one theme. The morning service of Yom Kippur is different. It's a totally different theme. Musaf is totally different. Mincha, Mincha is an awesome prayer, different. And of course, Ni'il is different. The differences are highlighted by the various three chodes, by the various piyutim. When you read, you suddenly get a sense that each of these five services is a world unto itself. They're very different, and the, the key to it, one of the keys anyway, are these, are these three chodes. Five totally different moods, different, different, different themes, it's different. It's not just one big thing. It's five discrete prayers. So that's, that is a value of, of reciting the Srikot. In any event, the problem is that in Musaf, we don't say Yavah V'Yavah. The Ashkenazim, I believe in some Sephardic uh, synagogues they do, but the Ashkenazim do not say Yavah V'Yavah in Musaf. So where do you say, for those who say Srikot, the few of us who say Srikot, where do you say the Srikot in Musaf? Since most people never say Srikot in Musaf, you probably don't know. But I'll tell you, and it doesn't matter if say it or not, but the, the idea is very important. The way Musaf works is this. The Musaf has three main pieces to it. Three classical pieces to the Musaf. The first part are all these poems that are added in, which are very beautiful, but actually they're not central to the service at all. You could chop them out. You, would, you don't say the Sanatok if you're missing something, but it's not actually integral to the structure of the service. The Musaf service of Yom Kippur has three pieces. The first piece is the reenactment of the service of the high priest. It's called the Avoda. I would say that's one of the big three services of Yom Kippur. The reenactment of the service of the high priest. And there were many, many such uh, poems written to reenact the service of the high priest. They all begin the same way. They begin with the creation of the world and uh, describing various mistakes that are made over time until you come to the high priest in the temple and the detailed reenactment of what he does, which is based on the Mishnah in Masechet Yoma. The core piece of the service in the Muslim is the Mishnah. In fact, the early Avodot are almost simply a recitation of the Mishnah. Unlike, unlike Rosh Hashanah, as I mentioned last week, that you read verses from the Bible, it's about God. Yom Kippur is about us. We read our great work, which is the Mishnah, which is the result of human creativity and, and, and study. And Tarsha was given them. That's related to the, yes, that's the, right, that's correct, but I mean, but it's, I'm not sure what, what do you start with. The point is, 
I'm at the core, Yom Kippur is about us, so the, the, the text is us. After you read about the service of the high priest, the classical service says, this was great when we had him, we had him so beautiful. Mari Kohen, it was so terrific. But, but our sins destroyed the temple, and our continuing sins prevented from being rebuilt. What can we do? What can we say? and And after Slichot, after Slichot, we have the confessions. Those are the three pillars of Musaf. The service of the high priest, the penitential prayers, the confessions. Now that is actually highly instructive. That order is very instructive for the following reason. So just one second. For the following reason. Ewa Eskra is part of is part of is part of the Slichus. Ewa Eskra is part of the Slichus, actually. That's your question. Ewa Eskra is in Musaf. It's part of the Slichot service. You're referring to the, 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 the ten martyrs. The ten martyrs are part of the Slichot service. The idea of the ten martyrs is that you, um, that the death of the martyrs is some kind of an atonement of sorts. Now, it's like this. The, the Slichot service, which is Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanum, that is... <coughs> That is taken from the Torah. That's in the Torah. Where is it in the Torah? It's what God says to Moshe after the story of the golden calf. So the core story of all of our prayers, which are rabbinic creations, have at their core some kind of biblical text. The Yom Kippur story, as it were, is the golden calf. And after the golden calf is about Israel's sin of the golden calf, which is a very significant sin because it happens after we stood at Sinai and as Moses is about to bring down the tablets from Sinai which are called Luchot Habrit, the tablets of the covenant. So the sin of the golden calf actually suspends or destroys temporarily the covenant with God. And then begins this process of trying to reconcile with God, trying to get a second set of tablets to allow us to build God's temple. And there's a whole process over there of negotiation, conversation, you know, tshuva, as it were, the people are crying, the people take off their jewelry, talked about that last week. At the end of this process, God says to Moses, come back, stand before me, and God reveals to Moshe God's nature, God's forgiving nature. Rachum v'chanun erech ha'payim v'chesed Now, what is at stake in that the story of the golden calf? If you have your Tanakh with you, your Bibles with you, you will see straight out that what's at stake in the, in the, in the story as told in the book of Shemot, the Exodus version, because the Deuteronomist has a different version actually, believe it or not, but the Exodus version of the story is this, that Moses is on the mountain and God says to Moshe, the people have sinned. And when Moshe is still on the mountain, Moshe appeals to God. Moshe appealed to God. That's the reading on a fast day. And God said, God, God, God repents, so God changes God's mind. God says, God, I plan to destroy all the people. And God says, I'm not going to destroy the people. The next verse says, and Moses went down the mountain. Moses turned and went down the mountain. And that there, in a way, begins the story of the golden calf. What's interesting is 
what is taken off the table in the book of Exodus is the question as to whether God will destroy the people. God says, I'm not going to destroy the people. That's not, that's not the issue. The issue is not destruction. We're going to survive. The issue is what kind of survival, quality of life is the issue. And God said to Moses in chapter 33, in fact, I'm going to send my angel. He's going to drive out the people in the land and you're going to possess the land in milk and honey, but I will not go with you. I can't go with you, says God. If I go with you, you're going to get me angry. And when you get me angry, I'm going to destroy you. So, we, we, we can't be together. We can be good friends. Take the, the, my angel. But if we're living together, it's going to be, say, as we say, we'll destroy you. So, so that, in other words, and then the people mourn. And then Moses, and then the negotiation. What are the people mourning? The absence of the temple. What does it mean I'm not going to go with you? No, Mishka. So what the, the issue in the, in the book of Exodus, which surrounds the golden calf, is not survival. It's not the issue in Exodus. Survival we're assured of. The issue is, will God dwell in our midst or not? Which in the Chumash is the Mishkan. The issue is, can we have a Mishkan or not? And Moses succeeds, actually, as representing us, our negotiator succeeds in getting God to allow God's presence, God's forgiving presence, to dwell amongst us. So in our prayer service, just one second, in our prayer service, that's exactly what we have. We have, the, uh, we have the reenactment of the service of the high priest. We don't have too many reenactments in our tradition, by the way, in terms of prayer. I can think only of two in our entire prayer service where we actually reenact something. One is the service of the high priest on Yom Kippur, and the other is on Hoshana uh, Rabbah, Hoshana's basically. The walking around the synagogue is a reenactment of what they did in the temple. There are two temple reenactments in our, in our, in our present-day service. Otherwise, you never feel you're in the temple. The Christians have a different approach. The Christians are in the temple, basically. We're not. We're not in the temple. We can dive in the old, the, the old phone booths were there. Now we don't need phone booths. We got cell phones. But the point is, in the old days, you catch a mincha in the phone booth. You don't need temples. But there are two days in which we have a reenactment. My point is that the reenactment, you think, we once had this beautiful temple, we once had, but now we don't have it anymore. What are we going to do? We, how, do, how do we get this temple back? And you get the temple back through Hashem, Hashem, Karach, and Mechan, because in the Chumash, that's exactly what allows us to, to rebuild the temple. What did you want to say? Okay, so the, the, the answer to you, is there a relationship to the Meraglim in terms of Slichot? The answer is yes. Let me see if I will, actually will get to, give me two minutes, I'll get to that. That is, so now we've, we've solved, so, and, let's see, so Ni'ila, Shacharit, and Mincha is Yavah V'yavah that introduces. In Musaf, it's the absence of the temple that introduces, which leaves us with only one other service, which is the night, Kol Nidre night, pretty awesome service actually. Kol Nidre night has three pieces to it. There's Kol Nidre, there's Kol Nidre, which is the nullification of vows, Everybody, when I grew up in, everybody was crying during the nullification of vows. Were they crying about? It's a good question. But let me tell you something. If they're crying, there's a reason for it. Don't think for a second that they're not, they don't know why they're crying. I mean, they, 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 they do know. We should all be crying from the drink. Everybody's crying from the drink. Yes, why? The vows that we made last year are nullified. It's a formula. That's what you're crying about. Okay, I'll get to that. That's called Nidre. 
Then we'd, then we'd have Marif. Then we'd regular Marif service, regular. After Marif, after Marif, what do we say? Slichot. Very beautiful Slichot, actually. How do we introduce, how do the Ashkenazim, I can't speak for this far, what they have there. How do the Ashkenazim universally introduce Slichot night? That's correct. I grew up with a very beautiful Nusach for Yalatachnumenu. Beautiful. Survivor. What a, it's unbelievable davening. Yalatachnumenu. Now, what is Yalatachnumenu? Do you have your After Myriv, we start Slichot. Yalatachnumenu meyerev. Yavo Shavatenu mi Boker. Vieira rinu nenu adarev. Yalat. What is it? What is it? It's Yahweh of course. The first of all is Yahweh of That's So the poets said Yahweh of number one. Why? There are two very interesting things about Yahweh Tachmunenu. One is because the, we are introducing the Tzrichot of, of the Yom Kippur night with Yahweh V'yavu. We don't say Yahweh V'yavu. There's no repetition of the Shemona Esrei. Tzrichot is only recited in the Chazar, only publicly. But there is no public at night because the Chazan in Myriad doesn't repeat the Shemona Esrei. So there is no Yahweh V'yavu to be recited again because the Chazan is not... So, so then we make one up. Yahweh v'yavo is the, is the poetic license. Yahweh t'achrunenu is to make up, you know, what is the point, however? And the point is very important. Because there is a custom to say slichot even before Rosh Hashanah. The, the, the Sephardim is saying slichot from Rosh Hashanah, Elul, actually. But they're different than Yom Kippur. The point that's being made of Yahweh v'yavo, the reason we start with Yahweh t'achrunenu, is to make a very important about slichot, which is, it's not that... It's Yom Kippur, and we happen to say Slichot on Yom Kippur. It's making a different point, is that the very day of Yom Kippur, if someone says, what is this day about? Tell me, what, what is Yom Kippur? The, Yom Kippur is the, uh, is, the, is the day that we say Slichot. The, the Slichot are essential to Yom Kippur. It's a day about, it. it's a day about re- requesting forgiveness. It's a day about confession. It's a day about atonement, human transformation. It's about growth. It's about trying to figure out who we are. That's what the day is about, actually. That's Yahweh, that's Yahweh Tachmunenu. Interesting is something else about Yahweh Tachmunenu. It says, Yahweh Tachmunenu me erev, v'yavo shavotenu mi boker, v'yera rinunenu ad erev. What does the poet have in mind over here? Yahweh Tachmunenu me erev, v'yavo shavotenu mi boker. There were two different, two different biblical verses that the poet has actually co-opted. One is the expression in the Torah, Me'erev Ad'erev. Yom Kippur is described in the Torah as, on the ninth day at night, Me'erev Ad'erev, from night to night, Tishpetu Shabbatchem, you shall observe your Sabbath from night unto night. That's Me'erev Ad'erev. So, Yahweh Tachne Me'erev. And the third line is, V'yerar Rinunenu Ad'erev. So it's Erev Ad'erev. 
But there's another line that the poet has also in mind, which is the second and third lines. The second line is, V'yavo shavotenu mi rinu ad erev, and that line is mi boker ad erev. What is mi boker ad erev? Where is that from? Mi boker ad erev. Taken from the story of, of Moshe and his father, or Yitro. Moses was sitting down. His father came to visit him with the wife and kids. Who Moshe has zero interest in, by the way, but he likes the father-in-law. Vayhimi Macharat, and it came to pass on the next day. What does Rashi comment, by the way? Mi Macharat, what does Rashi say? Mi Macharat Yom Kippurim, says Rashi. Day after Yom Kippur, says. And Moshe was sitting down. And Moshe sat down, says the Torah, mina boker ada erev, from the morning until night. What did the poet have in mind over here? Mi boker ad erev. Very simple point about Yom Kippur. The Torah emphasizes with Yom Kippur, and only with Yom Kippur, it starts at night. It's very hard to know, by the way, I'll tell you a little secret, in the Torah, when the day actually starts. The day, the day in the Torah, not the way the rabbis construct it, but in the Chumash, when, when does the day start? Does it start at night? Does it start in the daytime? The Rashbam, his book got censored for this reason, believes that it starts actually in the daytime. I think there's strong evidence that that's true. In any event, the point is, what do we do in Yom Kippur? Says the poet, it's very, you know, the custom is, you know that the custom is that for those who wear the uh, Tawit, to put the Tawit on, before, before Kol Nidri. It's the custom. Whoever wears a talus puts on the talus before Kol Nidri. What is that? What is that about? Why do you put a talus on be, before Kol Nidri? What, 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 here's what I believe. I believe it stems from the practice, which was, we don't see this anymore, but the practice was that on Yom Kippur, you didn't sleep. In fact, a, a remnant of this practice still exists. Of course, we know that the high priest didn't sleep on Yom Kippur, of course. But the point is, the remnant of the practice is the custom that many synagogues still have to this day to recite all of the Shiri Yichud Yom Kippur night. It takes about an hour, hour and a half. The idea is that since I'm not going to be sleeping all night, i got to put on my towers, now, because I want to have a chance later on, I'm going to put on the Taoist form of Yom Kippur. And the point is, the point of the poem is that Miboker Viat Erev, the morning, is a time of judgment. The judgment starts in the morning. In fact, if you look at the Slichot service for Yom Kippur, you will see that the classical Pismon for Yom Kippur is all about Joseph. Shofei Kala Aretz, Viotav Mishpat Yamid, is the classical pismon of the Ashkenazim for Yom Kippur morning. Kiolat Aboka, Shofei Kala is the judge of the world. Abraham called God the judge of the world. Judgment starts in the morning. Beit David Dinu Aboka Mishpat. Says the poet, the judgment starts in the morning. But you know what we do? We say Slichos at night. May Erev ad Erev precedes me Boker Viad Erev. So the practice is. Yes, the judgment starts. We're not waiting till the morning to pray. We are preempting the judgments, just as we do with the, with the custom of starting slichot even before Rosh Hashanah. It's not even Rosh Hashanah yet. We're saying slichot. We preempt the judgments. That's Yahweh Tachlon Neinu. 
So anyway, we're introducing, just to demonstrate the, the these poems, the way they're constructed, is a message here. It's not just art for art's sake. It's a very important message over here. A, that Yom Kippur is about these slichot, and B, that it's about the preempting of judgment through, this, through these penitential prayers. We're not waiting for the judgment. By the time the judgment comes around, in ten hours from now, we're deep into, we're deep into, into these prayers. We already have God's ear before the judgment, so you preempt the judgment. That is, so that's what we're doing at night. So we make up a Yavah actually. That's the way Slichot are introduced on Yom Kippur. Now we, um, I'll respond to your question about the Muragwe. You asked me about the Muragwe, so I'll tell you. There's something else very interesting about the Slichot service. There's something very interesting about this formula of Hashem Hashem Kel Rachum V'chanu. Someone mentioned earlier, Nisa mentioned earlier, that on Yom Kippur in the tradition is the day that the Torah was received. The second Ruchot are received on Yom Kippur. And that the idea of the second Ruchot, the emphasis is that on Yom Kippur we were given the Torah Shabbat Peh, the Oral Law. The ability to not just receive the Torah, but to interpret the Torah. We have an interpretive tradition, which is a good thing to have. I think the process may have slowed up a bit in recent times, but we have the ability to interpret, to read. Otherwise, you have a fossilized religion. This way you have a living religion. And that's our job, all of us, to be part of this interpretive tradition. What's interesting is that the expression, Hashem Hashem Kel Rachum V'chanu, that phrase that we appeal to God's mercies, appears in the Bible many, I think eight or ten times. And each time is different, actually. So that, for example, in the story of the spy episode in the book of Bamidbar, when God says to Moshe, the, the spies, that they don't want to go to the land, they've rejected me, I'll destroy them. That's what God said the first time. And there Moses says to God, you can't destroy them. What about the attributes of mercy? And Moses recites, the Yud Gimel Midot. And God says to Moses, Salachti Kidvarecha. But when you look at the Chumash, you see something very interesting about the Yud Gimel Midot in the story of the Muradim, which is, he changed them. He doesn't, Moses doesn't say 13 attributes. He leaves some of them out. Three in particular he leaves out. But the most interesting, he leaves, he leaves out Emet, truth he leaves out. But he also leaves out Rachum V'chanim. He leaves out the first ones. Why? Why did Moses leave out, he starts with Erech why did he leave out Rachum Vachanu? And what I believe is this about Rachum Vachanu. Rachum Vachanu are two of the attributes of God's mercy. Rachum is God is merciful. From the word Rechem, which means a womb. God treats us like we are God's creations. And Chanun means grace. Chanun is what a master is gracious towards a slave, what, the, what someone who's higher is gracious towards someone who's lower on social standing, etc. And Rachel is more of a relationship. In any event, those two attributes appear as separate in the conversation of Moshe and God after the golden calf. When Moses is praying for the people and God says, you stay here in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by. I will be gracious to those who find grace and I'll be merciful those I might choose to have mercy upon. And those are the two attributes that are singled out in the context of the book of Exodus. And what is that story actually about? As I mentioned before, it's not about the Jewish people surviving. 
because God said you'll survive. It's about the relationship. What Moses' role is in Shemot is to be a negotiator to bring the two sides together. So Israel and God have to come together, which means typically compromise on each side. Israel has to mend their ways, has to cry, has to search God out. Talked about that last week. The truth is that God also compromises. Because the God who will travel with us in the desert is not a God in all of God's attributes. It's Racham B'chadon. It's the attributes of mercy. Only if God, one might say, limits God, is it possible for us to have a full relationship with God. Because God's right. If I go in my fullness, in my, in my aspect of, 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 of judgment, how can anybody survive? So it's only possible for God to be with us if God travels in the aspect of mercies. So that's about relationship. When it comes to the, to the spy episode, however, what's Moses going to say? The people said to Moshe, we don't want to go into the land. We want to go back to Egypt. What is Moses going to say to God? Please bring them into the land. That's what Moses says in Exodus. Please take them into the land. You promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If Moshe had said that, God would have said, take them into the land. I'm happy to take them into the land. They don't want to go. What do you mean take them into the land? They want to go back to Mitzrayim. But what are you talking to me for? Talk to them. Forget it. It makes no sense. It doesn't work. So Moshe has a different strategy there. It's not about their rule. Moshe understands it's not going to work. And Moshe has a different strategy, which is Erech which is don't destroy them. Give them, distribute the punishment over time. Let the next generation emerge. The Poketa Vota Vota Banim in the book of Numbers actually is positive. It's got a distributive theory of punishment. If God visits the punishment only on this generation, God will destroy them. Give them an opportunity to develop. That, 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 that's Moses' prayer. That's what God says. Okay, they're not going to go into the land. But they're going to have to wait 40 years. But the next generation will go. So you see, what's very interesting is this idea that Nisa mentioned earlier that Yom Kippur is the day of Torah Shabbat Peh. It's the day of the oral tradition. It means the day of the ability of the human being to interpret God's word. The best example of that in the Bible is Hashem Hashem Kerachim V'chanun. Because there you have Moses interpreting God's word. Moses changes God's word. You said Rachum V'chanun, and I leave out Rachum V'chanun. You said Emet. I don't want Emes, says Moshe. I don't want truth. Leave, leave truth out of it. Operate differently. Each situation is different, and Moshe, the great interpreter, is able to take God's word, but to adjust God's word to the appropriate situation. That's Hashem Hashem Kir Rachum V'chanun. By the way... So that's why the feeling you still me. That's why the stress is... Of course, I'll get to that one. Now, 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 that's my next point. That's, that's the next point I want to make. It's a point that I made many times. Maybe you heard it from me in the past, but I'll tell you, I like it very much. I'll repeat it. If you look at the Slichot service of Yom Kippur, it's very interesting. Let's say, let's say the, the Slichot service first emerges actually before Yom Kippur, Kol Nidre. After Kol Nidre, right? What does the Chazan say? Slachna lavona amazek kodu chastecha. The Chashena sata. Actually, 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 before that. The Chazan before that. The Nislach choadat bene Yisrael. This is the Kol Nidre service. So listen to this, it's very good actually. This is because it's true. After Kol Nidre. The Nislach choadat bene Yisrael. The Chazan says, the Nislach which is, can be translated in one of two ways. In the Torah it means it shall be forgiven. The sin of Israel shall be forgiven. 
Why? Ki they sinned unwittingly. Because they didn't mean to sin. They sinned un- unwittingly, by accident. Mishka was a shogay. Accident. Then, after we say that as well, then the Chazan says, Forgive the people and your, your great mercies, great loyalty. As you have borne them from Egypt till now. And the, the congregation says, responds three times, and that's the end of the Kondetre service. What's that about? So let me explain what that's about, actually. There's an act of interpretation. That the the Master actually is interpreting the Chumash. First of all, there are two verses that are cited. The first, the Nisrach v'choadat b'nei Yisrael, is taken from chapter 15 of the Book of Bamidbar. It's the chapter after the spies. It says that the entire congregation sinned unwittingly, they can bring a sacrifice. The Nisrach, and the sacrifice shall be forgiven. Why? The people in their totality have, have made an error. The presumption of the Torah is if all the people sin, it's got to be an error. It's got to be a shogay. And that's the basis for forgiveness. Right? The next verse that's cited, is from Numbers chapter 14. It's what Moses said to God after the story of the spies. And God's response to Moses was, Vayomer Hashem, Sorachti Kidvarecha. I forgive as you say. And throughout Yom Kippur, after we recite Hashem Hashem Kerachum Vachanum, the next piece of it is always these two verses from the book of Numbers, from Bamidbar, from the story of the spies. The, the Slichot service of Yom Kippur then has conscripted two different stories. One is the story of the golden calf. That's the main story. But afterwards, we often say, Now what I want to say about this was the following thought about Kol Nidre. Kol Nidre is not essential to Yom Kippur, actually. And truth is, in the Talmud, it's not mentioned in conjunction with Yom Kippur altogether. It's mentioned in conjunction with, uh, with, uh, with, with, with Rosh Hashanah. Before Rosh Hashanah, people should be matted in the Darim. The idea of Hatarat Nidarim, of a knowing vows of the previous year, which Kol Nidre is related to, obviously, is connected in the Talmud to Rosh Hashanah and not to Yom Kippur. But Jewish practice for many, many years has been to say Kol Nidre, okay, it's maybe, maybe it's just ceremonial, nonetheless, we say it before, before Yom Kippur. Why? People cry their eyes out about what? Nullification. The court says the vows, you made a mistake, okay, we nullified the vows of the previous year. So if you ask what is the significance of, of, of Kol Nidre, some people may say, well, it really relates to the Muranos, you know what I mean? The hidden Jews who were really making a statement about, about their own identity. That's a piece, that may be true about the Muranos, the hidden Jews or whatever. But as, a, but as an explanation, it's a piece of utter nonsense. First of all, Kondidre predates the Muranos by hundreds of years. Think of the Muranos. We're not crying for the Muranos. That's a total nonsense. So, so what is it, actually? So I'll tell you what I think it is. There's something about Kondidre that's very striking. As we begin Yom Kippur, what is Kondidre? So the, what, the main approach to Kondidre 
is that, and I think it's clear, is that it is the nullification of that. We stand up, we, be, we actually convene a kind of court. The practice is to have a baton up there. Three people stand up, Chazan's one of them, and the court symbolically stands up and says, all these vows that we took and all these obligations we made, oaths and vows and whatever, Shavikin, Shavitin, Petevin, and we know them. Now, what is this business of being Matur actually? Hataras Nedarim. You study the Bible. Here's one thing that's clear. When you study the Bible, just with two eyes and without apologetics, that such a thing never existed and never could exist. It is clear in the Bible, as a bell, that if you take a vow or an oath, you've got to keep it. And if you don't believe me, just ask Yiftach. You know what I mean? What's a, there is one situation where the people for, prevented from happening. When Jonathan wants to kill Saul, Saul wants to kill Jonathan, people stopped him. He was going to do it. You take a vow, you got to do it. And the reason is very simple. Because when you take a vow or an oath, what are you really doing? You're, you, you're taking God's name. You're imposing God's name. I swear by God I'm going to do X. Once you mention God's name, that's it. Finished. You have no way out of it. When Jacob says to Joseph, bury me in the land of Canaan, and Joseph says, I'll do it, then Yaakov says, swear you'll do it. Which means, swear means you will do it. Because there's no way out of it once you swear. Come along, the Mishnah says it. Hetan the Darim Porchin Ba'avir. The Mishnah says it. Hataras the Darim floats in the air. It has no basis. It's more than no basis. It's a contradiction to the Bible. No, God is God can nullify Nedarim, but can people? Do we have the right? Comes the rabbinic tradition and says we have the right. We know it's tenuous in terms of the text. We believe we have the right to be Matur It means we believe we have the right, even if something was taken in God's name, to overturn statements made in God's name. It's up to us. That's that's what we're saying as Yom Kippur begins. We have the right to overturn God's, God's decrees. It's all in our hands. And the fact of the matter is that after Kol Nidre is an incredibly clever interpretive act by the part of the Master. Because the point of the verse that we are citing after Kol Nidre, which is this, V'nislach l'chol adat b'nei Yisrael, the word V'nislach lends itself to do, in Hebrew, can mean one of two things. V'nislach can be the passive voice. It shall be, which is the way you read in the Chumash. It shall be forgiven. That's Vinislach. But Vinislach has another possibility. We shall forgive. The way it functions, Konidre night, is the second way. The court is making a statement. Not God. Forget God. We forgive. That, that's, that's the point. The, the, the chutzpah is beyond belief. The, we stand up and say, the court says to us, we're going to forgive you. And then God chimes in and says, Vayomer Hashem, Salafi Kidvarecha, says God, I forgive as you say. Now, why are people crying? They should be crying. You know what this means? The, the unbelievable responsibility. It's not, getting us, it's not getting us off the hook. It's the opposite. Your fate is in your hands. Forget God. It reminds me of Purim, actually. Yom Kippurim. It's all up to us. That, that's what we're saying. Friends, God is a given. Forget that. Are we going to do what we have to do? That's the question. 
It's unbelievable. This idea that we are responsible for our own faith, that we can, this is our myth as it were. Or that another human being is responsible. What? Or that another human being is responsible. Right, but they are, our, they are our designees. The point is, they are representing us. The point is, we are gathering together as a community. And before Kol Nidre, we say something else, which is also very powerful. We say that whoever is in this room, this is part of our community. Even those that were exiled or, or put in Cherem or whatever, we're all in this thing together. It's a true sense of community. Everybody's included. Because after all, we have said the truth. The person we vilify over there, that could be us. If it's not us, it's by virtue usually of circumstance. So the point is, we're all in this thing together. And these are our designees. These are the people we have designated. This is us. We are saying, in effect, unlike Rosh Hashanah, it's all about God. God is king of the world. But on Yom Kippur, we're making a different statement. On Yom Kippur, we're saying that, and this is our, I think I would say our myth, one of our guiding principles, Jacob becomes Israel. We know that on some level, it's always an act of grace that we believe. On the other hand, I do think that, we said Kol Nidre, we're making a different point, which is, God is, God is a given for Yom Kippur. Says God, if you do the work you're supposed to do, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go along with it. The question, of course, is can we do what we're supposed to do? That's the problem. That's the question. That's the, that's, that's the power of Kol Nidre. And this idea that we can actually overturn God's word, overturn God's judgment, overturn God's Bible, which is what Atar Sadarim actually is. Anyway, it's very simple and straightforward, but it's very powerful. Now, let me get to the other point. That's the story. That's the Moravi. So the truth is, we are we were both actually. We are. The main text is from the Book of Exodus. But the uh, secondary text is the second time that we have these attributes of God's mercy. By the way, I mentioned a small as a side over here. Then I'll finish up with one last point about what I mentioned about 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 Bidley. Something I heard once, I believe it was from Eben Leader, I'm not sure, but I, I'm not sure he said it in this context, but the idea is I heard from him, and I think it's very powerful. But actually, on, on Yom Kippur, we have, a, we have, of course, the whole davening is the golden calf. The hero of Yom Kippur, I said, Rosh Hashanah, the hero is Abraham. In the, the hero of the, at least the hero of the liturgy is Abraham. The hero of the Torah readings on uh, on Rosh Hashanah is actually Sarah and then Oshana, the women of the heroes of the of the of the of the, of the Haftarah, Sarah and Chana, especially Chana, and then and also I say and also Rachel, Rachel, Mavaka, Abonel, three women. But on Yom on Yom Kippur there's one hero. It's Moses. It's Moshe. Moses. Kelo Rachel right? As you revealed it to the modest one. Who's the modest one? It's Moses. Moses, Moses prays for us on, on the, after the golden calf. It's interesting, by the way, something else about Moses, thinking about Moshe on, on Yom Kippur, we have to remember one thing very important about when Moshe came down the mountain, what the Torah emphasizes about Moshe, which is he was all alone. He has no fun. He came down the mountain, his brother had sold him out, he had told the people, Aaron and Chur, Chur disappears off the scene, the major says they killed him. Aaron made the golden calf. Joshua, his beloved disciple, his faithful disciple, is waiting on the foot of the mountain. He doesn't know what's happened in the camp, and what does he hear? He says, 
I hear the sounds of war. Moses was unable to communicate. They're not hearing the same thing. His disciple couldn't hear what the, what the, what the teacher doesn't hears. Doesn't hear it. No, no, it's not a war. Something else. So what does he have? He has not his disciple. He doesn't have his brother. He has God. He has God as, as he has he has told him. He's holding the tablets, Mizel, Mizel, right? And what does he do? Breaks them. He has to break them. He has to give up the thing most precious to him. He has himself, basically. He comes into the camp alone, and he decides that he's going to fight. Hashem And he's able to turn the tide. One person, actually, is able to turn the tide. It's unbelievable. That's what we're remembering Moshe on Yom Kippur. At the end of the day, talk about communal prayer and all that, about every person, as a, each of us has her, her his own story. So that's what Yom Kippur is about. It's our stories, and we stand alone, even though we stand in a big community. We stand alone, and we're remembering Moses who stood alone. The high priest also goes alone, by the way, to the holy of holies, and nobody shall be in the in the in the old Moe, But he, it's all about being alone on Yom Kippur, because at the end of the day, everybody's different. Everybody's unique. Everybody's my story is not your story. So therefore. We are remembering Moshe is the great hero of, 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 uh, of Yom Kippur. That's the now we have. So this is the uh, this is the slichot service of, of, of Yom Kippur, and we say it another time. We have the slichot are mentioned another time in the interesting at the end of Yom Kippur, not the very end, but towards the end. There is another time that we have a kind of Hashem Hashem Kelachum Vachanum. Another version, another variation on a theme. Someone else, of course. At the end of Yom Kippur, we are reading the book of Jonah. He had a different take on, on right? Jonah is sitting outside the city. Jonah is sent to Nineveh to tell them to repent. So what does he do? He runs away. He runs, it's in Micha too, it's in eight places. Yeah, it's in Micha, it's in Micha, it's in, it's in Micha, it's three places in the Psalm, it's many places. But, but we don't read Micha, no, no, no. We do some, some, some have it at the end of the Aftar. But in Yonah you have it, and Yonah is very interesting. Because in Yonah actually, it's about the prophet who doesn't want to carry out the prophecy. He's sent to Nineveh, go to the city of Nineveh, he runs away. Why? Why does Jonah run away? So the truth is, there are all kinds of theories, but actually, we don't really need theories, because Yonah himself says why. Yonah himself says why he ran away. Because he goes to Nineveh, and what does he say to Nineveh? In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overturned. See, Jonah is the most successful prophet who ever lived. Unbelievable prophet. <laughs> Jeremiah is 52 chapters trying to bring the people back to repent. So God is telling us, it doesn't help, right? Jonah, what does he say? Old Abraham, Yon, five words. And the king of Nineveh gets off his throne and he puts on sackcloth and everybody's crying and, and crying out to God. The animals are crying out. So, what's the difference? You know what it is? Now, I'll tell you something. I'm not sure it's true or not, but it could be. Jeremiah wants the people to survive. Jeremiah is our friend. At the end, he tells us terrible things, but Jeremiah loves us. Jonah wants them to die, actually. Jonah wants them to die, and they know it. 
But he says, 40 days, Nineveh shall be destroyed. He's hoping, and please God, do it, if you can do it quicker, it's even better. He hates them. At the end, he's waiting outside the city for Nineveh to be destroyed, and he's very disappointed. It's not destroyed. And he's very upset. God says, what are you, are you upset? Are you angry? I'm angry even unto death. I knew you were going to do this, he says. I know where the way you are. There is a different formulation. I think it's in Yoel. I know you're a God who's long-suffering, who relents who, who of the evil. And he leaves out Emet. I know you are a God, he says, but he leaves out truth. Not as Moses left out truth because he doesn't want the truth. He leaves out the truth. It's a critique of God. He says, what is this? Why do you forgive him? How could you erase the past? not truthful. And do you really believe that they're repenting? Let's see how they are in five years from now. Ninveh. Ninveh is the evil city. Ninveh's Babel. Well, well, what is this? And actually, Jonah raises a good question, you know, that we all ask the same question. Yes, yes, Yom Kippur's transformation. Let me tell you something. The person you can't stand two days before Yom Kippur, you can't stand two, the two days after Yom Kippur either. You ever say, oh, I hate the guy's guts, but Yom Kippur passed, you know? No. You don't actually believe that to be the case. Maybe on rare occasions it happens, but, you know, I knew one person who actually Yom Kippur changed a life. Yom Kippur person. Changed all life. Yeah, that's very rare. So, Yom Kippur is... Ra- the book of Jonah raises a very important question. Jonah actually calls Yom, the whole Yom Kippur into question. And the question is, what is God's answer to Jonah? What is God? God answers Jonah, whether Jonah accepts it or not. He says, "You have, you have, you're so upset of this glory that was destroyed, and I'm not going to have mercy on these on these hundred thousand people who don't know their left hand from their right hand, and all the animals." That's the end of the book, actually. So, whatever we have to think about, what is God's response? What's interesting is that the book of Jonah is using God's is using the Yudkimu Midot, but a completely different, which reverses it is that Yonah doesn't want the Midot. Yonah doesn't like the attributes of mercy. He says, because they're not true. Well, how could you forgive them? What, what happened to truth here? In any event, of course, his name is Ben Amitai, and that's, of course, that is the truth about Jonah. He says, and that's, that, that's very important. It raises the question about, about truth. And the truth is, about Jonah, that isn't that their era. The book of Jonah is actually based upon two stories. One is the story of Moses with the golden calf, but there's another character Time does not allow any kind of discussion now, but yes, the prophet Elijah. Elijah is very similar to Jonah. Same kind of personality, the same kind of concern about truth. The Medrash claims, of course, that the child born to the woman that he resides with is actually Jonah. It's a Medrash, but of course, it's making a point that Jonah, in a certain sense, is Elijah's spiritual son. So a study of the Eliyahu stories and the Jonah book are very much in order, but not for now. I just wanted to conclude the following thought. I began, I mentioned before, that Slichot is one piece of it, and then there's something else. There are these confessions. There are these many confessions. I must confess, I've always was a big fan of the Slichot service, much less of these confessions. But in any event, there they are, and the idea of confession is very significant, obviously. But we have a strange custom. To, to confess as Yom Kippur begins. What is that about, actually? Everybody has the custom, the practice, I mean, it's universal practice, whether observed or not, to confess a mincha. Mincha, you, that's, you add the V to a mincha, of course. 
But what does it mean as, as Chom Nidre is beginning to say the Tzvi Lozaka or to say Lecha Hashem Teshukati or some of the Gaoni have long but Sadi Gaon is a beautiful Vidui. What, what? Let me say two things. Let me say one thing about Tzvi Lozaka. Let's about Tzvi Lozaka. And I want to say one thing about confessing as Yom Kippur starts. And I'll stop. Tzvigo Zaka is a, yeah, a male-centered because it's all about it's all about all the acts of sex that didn't result in having children and, the, and these, these acts are creating all these angels these destructive angels and all that. That's a lot of it. It's, it's, very, it's very focused on, on that. What is that about? I actually like Tzvigo Zaka. Once, somebody once said to me, you like this prayer? Are you out of your mind? I mean, I like the idea of the angels. Because I'll tell you what it means. I'll tell you about the angels. You see, here's the point. You enter into Yom Kippur. And, you know, I remember one of my kids, I said, how could you do this? Well, I'm sorry. Oh, I didn't mean to do it, he said. I didn't mean to. And my answer was, who cares? You didn't mean to do it. But at the end of the day, you see, when you do something wrong, you create a reality. So I turn to God, Erev Yom Kippur, and I say, I'm sorry. And God says to me, that's great. Here's the problem I got. In the next room, I got 50,000 destructive angels. What the hell do I do with them? You know what I mean? <laughs> that's, that's the point. That's, that's the point of Trilozaka. That you actually create a reality. And then forgiveness becomes a great miracle, actually. Because there's no logical way to understand it. Because when you do something, you create a reality. Which is why in Yom Kippur, actually, there's not just atonement for those who are living. There's even atonement for the dead. That's basically Yisko on Yom Kippur. Kaper Yom Padita Why do the dead need forgiveness? Because what we do in our lifetime lives way beyond us. Because you set in motion a series of events, you can't stop it, actually. It can't. And then the question is, how can you ever really make it right? And that's the miracle of uh, that's the miracle. That's Tzvigot But I want to say something else about this idea of confessing as Yom Kippur starts. Some say? Some say what? A Some say the S-U-N. Oh, the sun is setting, yes? So therefore the time of day forgiveness. It's like Neil at the end of Yom Kippur. Well, Neil at the end of Yom Kippur, I understand. Yom Kippur is over. But why is the sun setting before Yom Kippur time of forgiveness? No, I understand, but why is that so? I mean, what is this? So I'll tell you what I heard from an Evan Weeder once said. It, it might have been in a different context. He said, he said, you know, somebody, I have a true story, he said, maybe he talk about himself. He once went with his wife or so, or somebody went with their spouse to speak to a therapist, to do couples therapy. And the therapist said to them, I'm happy to, before I do the therapy though, I want you to, you should have bad feelings. I want you to work all that out before you get to me. I want you to, I want you to actually forgive each other, to discuss it. When you finish with that, and it's all worked out, then we'll start the therapy. There's <laughs> something very deep about that, actually, about Yom Kippur. The point is, that's when the work really starts. It's not about just the erasing of mistakes. This is the point about Yom Kippur, it's the point he was making. It's an opportunity to to establish a very deep relationship, an ongoing relationship with the divine, with those things that we feel are, you know, are what is demanded of us, really, that speak to the best part of ourselves. 
And the idea of confessing before Yom Kippur, in a way, is saying that, is, yes, we made many mistakes, okay, let's, let's, let's take care of the mistakes. Yes, I did this wrong and that wrong and this wrong and that wrong. Okay, let's put that out. Now we start the therapy. Now we, now we actually, let's talk about, let's talk about creating this temple. Let's talk about the Migdash, because that's, that's our myth. It's not an allegory, as my wife says many times, it's a myth. It's about entering into a different consciousness on Yom Kippur. It's about, yes, I really want that temple to be rebuilt. I don't, but I do, on Yom Kippur, because you enter into another place, into another consciousness. And then once you enter into that place, and the question is, how do you then go back to where you are? How do we return to where we really are and take that experience with us? That's, I think, the great challenge of Yom Kippur. So we're starting with, we're starting to get, let's, get the, let's get the problems out of the way. And then we can stand before God, and then we can figure out where we're taking all of this. The truth of it is that in the Chumash, it's not about, God says, you know, listen, I'm going to go into the land, take my angel, milk and honey, you got everything. And the people are mourning and crying. We don't want that. We, want, we can do better. That's the point. We can, we, can, we, can, we, we can dwell together in harmony. We can have an ongoing connection. It's not just about correction of errors, okay? It's more than that. So that's the opportunity of Yom Kippur. That's the confession. Whether it's Tzvi Zaka, whether it's the Ibn Ezra's confession, or whatever, our own confession, make up our own, it doesn't matter. And then we're starting with the Kondidre, which is saying, and we believe we actually can do it. That's our myth. We believe that we can make these choices, that we can end up in a better place through our own efforts, our own insights. That's the belief of you. Of course, to get to Yom Kippur, you've got to go to Rosh Hashanah first. They were saying, we are strangers and sojourners in God's world. It's not about us. It's God's world. We're players in God's world. And then Yom Kippur, having gone through that first, then we can say, okay, it's in God's world, but it's a place for us as well. And that's the opportunity that Yom Kippur offers us.